You're listening to the What's Up With Hungry podcast. My name is Ben Novak. Joining me today is your host, Mr. Peter Erde. And we have a special guest host today, the very fabulous and awesome Victoria Shadut. Hello. Hi there. We will be discussing two stories. The first story we'll talk about today is a report that was issued by Human Rights Watch earlier this week that outlines uh, certain cases of alleged abuse on behalf of Hungarian authorities against uh, against migrants crossing into Hungary. Our second story, we'll be talking about Uber, who has decided to pack up its bags and get the hell out of Dodge. So let's get started. All in all, it's just a brick in the wall. We're speaking to Lydia Goss. She is the Eastern Europe and Balkans analyst for Human Rights Watch. Lydia, you wrote a damning report last week about the treatment of migrants, asylum seekers uh, coming in through Hungary. Tell us a little bit about your findings. We did research uh, throughout April and May uh, in Hungary and in Serbia. Um, some of that was focused on the transit zone procedures and the fact that people are effectively not being allowed to um, have you know, their individual asylum claims assessed, rather having them rejected immediately in the zones. Uh, the second part of the research was focused on ill treatment of migrants in the sense that people who uh, enter Hungary irregularly, meaning that they go through the fence rather than waiting outside of the transit zones, uh, these people, uh, in many cases, are apprehended by uniformed personnel on the Hungarian side, and then subsequently, often with the use of violence, being pushed back through the fence uh, back to Serbia. Now, you say uniformed uh, people. Do you have any ideas to, or any evidence suggesting? Uh, to which law enforcement or military? So basically there are three different groups that patrol the border. So you have the army patrolling the border, uh, you have uh, police patrolling the border, and you also at certain stretches of this border have so-called field guards or rangers that are employed by a local government in the area. So these are the three different groups that uh, go up and down, patrol up and down the border. They, have, they wear various types of uh, uniform clothing. So the police would normally walk around in dark blue and gray coats. Um, the army would wear some sort of camouflage um, uniforms and certain markings. And the field guards have very similar um, uniforms or, or attire. Uh, as the army. So they, um, when, you, when I spoke to migrants, in some cases they were very specific in terms of the, uh, you know, in describing the uniforms, uh, particularly when it came to the police. So I have several testimonies uh, attesting to the fact that these were people who wore dark blue uniforms and gray coats. Um, and they were, you know, batons, they had dogs with them, they had uh, vehicles that would be, you know, that would be used by the uh, the Hungarian police. Others told me about, um, you know, groups like a combination of, of, of uniformed personnel being present during these pushbacks. And uh, in the cases where it wasn't the dark blue uniforms, it was people who were wearing camouflage uniforms. Now, as far as a migrant goes, um, that person wouldn't be able to distinguish a field guard from from a soldier. So. So we we have we have very detailed descriptions of the type of people that were pushing them back, and they always um, these testimonies were you know the descriptions were consistent with the uniforms that would be worn by these three groups along the border. Are these uh, incidents connected to a particular location, or are these spread out throughout the southern border? So it's it's difficult to know the exact locations because obviously these people they don't have GPS locations in terms of the exact. Uh, where they exactly crossed. But 
I was sitting down with some of these migrants and we were trying to sort of figure out on a, G, like on a map, on Google Maps, roughly where it was. So it's in the area uh, between Kelebia and Horgos. So along sort of on the Hungarian side, it would be between Tompa and Ruska. It's a high traffic area. Uh, you have specific sections along this stretch, which, you know, forested sections, which seems to be the preferred areas where where uh, migrants and asylum seekers would then try to cross, either on their own devices or through the help of smugglers who will then direct them in specific directions uh, and specific points to defense. What What were the most alarming of these uh, testimonies that you heard? I mean, I think that the most alarming thing was that uh, in the well, I spoke to 12 people who accounted for more than 12 incidents. So there were cases where you had one person having been subjected to this on, on multiple occasions. But one particular uh, incident that was that was particularly brutal was basically corroborated by three different people who had been part of the same pushback. So I interviewed them separately in separate areas of Serbia. They, you know, they don't actually know each other, but you know, they apart from the fact that they were part of that group. And so their individual testimonies corroborated like the, the general happenings, the general the, the incident that took place. And that, uh, you know, that involved quite a lot of, um, you know, abusive behavior. So it was a, a protracted incident that took about two hours, where a larger group of around about 20 to 25 people, including women and children, had been apprehended by a mix of what they referred to as soldiers and police. So they described the uniforms again, there was the dark blue uniforms, the gray coats, and uh, the people wearing camouflage uniforms. There were dogs present as well. Um, they had gas spray with them, and you know all these features that would no, that police and, and army and even field guards would would normally use. So they accounted for an incident that where they basically were apprehended. These uniformed men uh, then proceeded to beat them quite viciously. They used their fists. Uh, you know they used batons. They used the gas spray in the sense that they put, you know, they, they asked, they basically told the group to sit down, you know, heads above, hands above their heads, stare down. And at one point, they basically took the single males and they lifted their heads and at very close range, they sprayed their eyes, yeah? I'm just wondering, was there anything that they thought provoked these people or was their intentions just to abuse them just for, I mean, I, I just don't like see the purpose of, no, so I mean, this is one of the questions I always ask, like whether that was something that prompted any sort of reaction that would warrant some sort of use of force. And in all cases, the, you know, the migrants were telling me we didn't do anything. We were captured. Uh, we, we were scared because we were surrounded by 20 to 30 uniformed men. We couldn't do anything. And so we, we complied with whatever they tried to tell us. I mean, often, you know, the, there is a language barrier here as well. But there was never any indication that they would have resisted any type of arrest or, or, or any sort of resistance on part of the migrants. So even in, I mean, in this particular case that I was referring to, the two-hour abusive behavior that this particular group was, uh, was exposed to, uh, one of the men told me that he had crossed uh, earlier he had crossed into Bulgaria from Turkey, and he said, well, you know, there we had what I would refer to as a sort of welcome to Bulgaria beating. Uh, whereas here, he said, it was different, because here they deliberately tried to inflict serious injuries on us. 
So that was kind of, you know, for me, when I heard him say that, because I know that there's a lot of abuse going on at the Bulgarian border. We have been documenting that for yeah, years. I've, I've spoken to asylum seekers who have also, I mean, they would show me scars and yeah. stuff. Very, very scandalous things happening there. Exactly. And the fact that this guy referred to that as some sort of a, you know, lighter well, version. Light, lighter version and a sort of a more like, a, oh, welcome to Bulgaria beating. Whereas this one, he said, you know, when he started describing the details of the event, it was quite shocking even to me to hear it because, you know, it, it's, it's, it's also the protract, protracted time frame in which this, this occurred. The two hours in the middle of the night, it was heavy rain, 20 to 30 uniformed personnel uh, being extremely threatening, continuously just randomly, arbitrarily beating people. And, you know, as they were telling me, you know, separately, uh, they said that, you know, they just beat them wherever they could. There was no sort of mercy shown or anything. Like, they just took out their batons and they, wherever they could hit them, they, they would. And, you know, at some point, you know, that that first sort of wave of abuse stopped and then they would put plastic handcuffs on them and then they would drag them back to the fence and at the fence the beatings would then again continue and at that point one of the men told me that you know the beatings and the abuse that we were going through was was you know was was really difficult and very hard and and uh, you know but he said what was even worse was the fact that at some point some of these uniformed men they pulled out their uh, their you know their mobile phones their smartphones and started taking selfies uh, laughing at them you know using abusive uh, language and just humiliating them and then you know the final part of this incident was you know when they were actually pushed through so they said that you know they beat us about 10 meters from the fence then they pulled us over we saw cars coming they said and we thought, finally, you know, this, this is going to come to an end and they're going to take us to, the, to a camp, you know, which they had indicated throughout this whole ordeal that they just want to go to a camp. And so when the cars came and they, you know, they thought that they were going to be taken to a camp, instead, whoever arrived, you know, the uniformed personnel in, in this particular, you know, in, in the cars that arrived, they came out and continued the beating. And then as they were pushed through, they said that there were also uniformed men on the other side of the fence. And they couldn't tell me whether they were Hungarians or Serbs, but they said that they communicated over walkie-talkies. And as they were pushed through the fence, like physically pushed through the razor wire fence, which is a three-layer fence. So there was no door or anything? No door. The no, a small hole. A lot of a lot of the migrants were talking about small holes. I think that they it's were it's important through. here to point out that the way this fence is constructed, all of this is still on national Hungarian national land. So this it's not like the the fence uh, like on one side it's Serbia and the other side it's Hungary. The, the fence is uh, is inwards from the Hungarian border. Yeah, there is there is about a five to ten meter buffer zone on the. Serbian side of the fence, which is still Hungarian territory, which would also explain the, you know, when the men were telling me about the uniformed uh, personnel on the other side of the fence, they might have well been Hungarian because it's still Hungarian territory. So, you know, so push through there. The other group of uniformed men on the Serbian side of the fence also preceded the beating and kept saying, go back to Serbia, go back to Serbia. What can you, what can you tell us about the, uh, is there an approximate uh, approximation of when this happened? Was it last week, two weeks ago, a month ago? This, is, this was on May 11th, this particular incident. And the incidents that I referred to in my report, they all took place in May. 
So I am also aware of the, uh, there was a government statement on this, uh, and you had a couple of people from the Hungarian government also commenting on this uh, yesterday and the day before. And one of the things that I found particularly uh, problematic in the way that they uh, recounted uh, you know, events and reacted to, to my findings is the fact that they seem to refer to incidents post-July 5, which there was a law that entered into force which enables Hungarian police to effectively uh, apprehend, capture people eight kilometers in, into Hungarian territory and escort them back to the fence and then open steel doors that are, you know, lined, you know, with, you know, at certain distances uh, throughout this fence, and then basically tell them that you need to go to the transit zones. These are not. This is my findings are prior to this, so there was no talk about, you know, the eight-kilometer rule or anything like that. These were straightforward pushbacks, very close to the fence or even further inland by Hungarian villages. Do you uh, do you buy into this theory? Some people. Uh, who are mostly in civil society dealing with refugees say that there's a deliberate effort on the part of the Hungarian government to show the worst possible face to the refugees so word spreads and people just avoid Hungary altogether because they will you know know how uh, they are treated here well i think if you look at if you look at statements made by the Hungarian government uh, including the prime minister himself throughout the I would say during the past year, it's quite clear that they don't want them here. I mean, you know, you can even point to the prime minister saying, you know, publicly, don't come here. And the whole anti-migrant campaign last year was also aimed at, at that. And a lot of the measures that they're taking right now, whether it's the creation, the establishment of these transit zones, which effectively bars asylum seekers from, from being able to effectively uh, submit and have their claims assessed on, in a fair manner in Hungary, or whether that's pushbacks that you know that uh, you know border officials are are engaged in at uh, at the Hungarian border, or if it's you know the restrictive uh, legal amendments that they've made with respect to rights of asylum seekers and even people with recognized status in Hungary, all of these things combined, uh, I would say, definitely goes to to the fact that they don't want them. Well, the Ministry of the Interior put out a statement. Uh the same day that that this uh, that this report was published on Human Rights Watch, uh, Human Rights Watch's website, and according to the Ministry of the Interior, Human Rights is misconstruing the rules relating to the asylum proceedings out of obvious ignorance of the situation. How long have you been dealing, you personally? How long have you been dealing with the with the refugee crisis as it pertains to Hungary? I would say. Over a year, but I've been working on refugee-related issues for over three years. So I think I know, you know, my stuff. And uh, and but but this this type of reaction, we're very we're very familiar with this type of reaction, uh, unfortunately. And we didn't expect. I mean, this is pretty much what we expected to come out from the Hungarian government because they have. They have uh, sort of a, a preferred approach of always deflecting from the substantive issues at hand. So rather than actually addressing the issues, they come up with some, you know, some deflective measures saying that we're either, you know, politically motivated provocateurs or that we're Soros sponsored or whatever it is. I mean, but basically it's always, um, it's always about sort of deflecting from the real issues. Have you had meetings with the police or the army, personally? We didn't have any meetings with the army. We had some aliens police part of a meeting that 
we had uh, one of the asylum detention centers. But what we did, I mean, the Hungarian government has been aware of these findings since June 13. We sent very detailed letters to the Ministry of Defense and the Ministry of Interior, as well as to the Office of Immigration and Nationality, where we you know, shared our findings with them uh, and our concerns and asked very specific questions from them. And we gave them three weeks to reply, and they didn't. Did you, did you see a, a shift in the stance of the Hungarian authorities? Like, we did not hear these reports at the height of the crisis last, uh, last autumn, right? In terms of uh, this type yeah, of abusive abuse, behavior? Yes, yeah. No, I mean, uh, to be honest with you, it was quite shocking to me as well when I first heard it because we didn't document anything like that, uh, you know, last year in, in the summer. And you asked the same question, so if... Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And uh, no, I mean, at the time, people were were quite unhappy about the general sort of humanitarian misery that they were facing as they came into Hungary or the fact that they couldn't leave Hungary. But they never ever said anything about ill treatment on part of police or army or anything like that. And even, I mean, I, I was at the border several times and I can even testify to good behavior by, you know, of the, by the police at the time in the sense that, you know, they were trying to help them, you know, the, the migrants that came on the railroad tracks. On a, so, I mean, there were good examples as well. So for me, when we started getting these testimonies, particularly from colleagues and other human rights activists in Belgrade, when they contacted me and said, we're getting very disturbing reports here from, from migrants and asylum seekers. And wh when was that? This was 2016 spring? This was around about, it started about early April, thereabouts. That's when we first started getting these sort of stories from people. And, and obviously, you know, that prompted me to go out and, and investigate this a bit closer and see really what is going on. And so, I mean, the, the way that we work is obviously like we, you know, we do the interviews with, you know, the victims of abuses, but we also corroborate it with, you know, uh, in other types of ways, like through desk research, through interviewing other organizations who deal very closely with, with these issues and even with government officials. I mean, I've spoken to, to the OIN about this, you know, I've, we've tried to get a reaction from the Hungarian government, which, you know, unfortunately we didn't get one. Uh, so we couldn't include their reflections in our in our report. So they As, they knew just to be clear, they knew this report was coming for for a month. They right? didn't know the exact release date, but they knew about our findings almost a month ahead of you know the publication of the report, and they had a chance to react, and they had a chance to have their reactions and their responses uh, reflected in our report. This <clears throat> these these particular cases that you write about in this report, aside from these. Um, have there been other cases, um, other documented cases where the suspicion of, uh, of abuse on behalf of Hungarian authorities, be that who it may, um, do you know of any other cases? Well, I know that uh, uh, the Helsinki Committee has been documenting, um, you know, many, many cases that, that are very, you know, that corroborate, you know, our findings, as well as UNHCR. They, just yesterday, UNHCR put out uh, like a weekly briefing on, you know, what's going on on the different borders. And they say it very clearly. They mentioned 33 cases that they themselves documented. These are people who are all pushed back to Serbia, right? So they don't have a chance to file like a criminal complaint? with the police in Hungary? This is another interesting um, topic that you're raising because, you know, if you look at the government reactions, uh, you know, from various government officials, that's what they're saying, that, you know, they only had eight police complaints. 
Lazar who was saying that yesterday during a press conference. Uh, I can imagine these cases emanating from when people, when when there was still the practice uh, by Hungarian police to capture people, put them, you know, in deten- in pretrial detention before going to court to be uh, prosecuted for illegal border crossing. And so I assume that these are the cases that he's referring to. I'm talking about people who are being pushed back to Serbia. Where are they going to file their complaints? In a bush? I mean, there is no way that they can actually complain about these things. So I think that he's talking about a completely different set of events and completely different set of complaints uh, of yes. police abuse, as opposed to you know what you know what we uh, detail in our report. Yeah, the Hungarian government would have uh, people following this particular story believe that um, that that Hungary is providing outstanding. Um, services to these asylum seekers. So there is there is not a country in Europe that is more humane towards these people than Hungary is. Would you di- agree or disagree with that? I would definitely disagree with that. I mean, we've been documenting the situation for asylum seekers, refugees, migrants in Hungary for you know like over a year now. And I can't really see where, you know, that statement is coming from, like what sort of evidence basis there is for that. Because, and that's not only us, by the way, in terms of Human Rights Watch. I mean, you know, UNHCR made similar concerns about humanitarian conditions in the camps. The, you know, the European Commission currently has initiated infringement proceedings against Hungary for its very problematic asylum laws. So if you take, you know, if you take all of that together, um, you know, I'm not sure how you can then come to the conclusion that this is, you know, uh, you know, some some sort of example of humanitarian, uh, you know, humanitarianism on part of you know the Hungarian government. I mean, it's quite clear to me that they have done everything in their power to make life very, very miserable for people who come here, uh, whether those are asylum seekers, uh, whether they are migrants, or whether they are recognized refugees already. Lydia, thank you very much for coming by. We look forward to reading what else you publish on this topic. Well, thank you for having me. Uber, a very popular um, app-based uh, ride-sharing service, is uh, is leaving Hungary. The company made the announcement earlier this week, and they will be gone on June. I'm sorry, July 24th. Now, for those of you who don't know what Uber is, Uber is a very cheap way to get from one part of town to the next. What what it entails is an application on your mobile phone. And uh, with this application, you can order a driver to your location and this driver will take you to whatever other location you want to travel to. Now, the thing that you need to know about Uber is that it's incredibly cheap. They essentially cut out the middleman. So you used to have these big cab companies which uh, had infrastructure, had radios, had, you know, centers to receive calls and direct cabs. And with Uber and with their application and uh, in digital infrastructure, you don't need that anymore. So the way they save the money is by cutting out the, the cab company in the middle so that you only have drivers and you only have passengers. Vicky, have you ever used Uber before? No, I haven't. Well, I don't even have the application, but many of my friends use it, so I know what it's about. I usually uh, take a taxi when I travel to the airport. And why is that? Is is the taxi to the airport cheaper? With no, tr- it's not. I, I don't have the application, so I've never even considered calling Uber. But is that, do you have like an aversion to the application? No, not. Uh, 
I, I guess uh, I live inside a city, so I never use taxis. I never use Uber. I don't need it. But every time I go to the airport, I see like, I have to pay 8,000 forints for just one ride to get to Ferryhead. So it's, it's, it's very expensive. It's Yeah, it's more expensive than a plane ticket. It is. I remember traveling to London for like 5,000 forints and then getting to the airport cost me 8,000. You see, so cabs are really expensive in Hungary and Uber. It's cheaper to fly to London than it is from Budapest, than it is to take a cab from downtown into the airport. So, And with all these low-cost airlines, they all uh, take off at 6, 6.30, so you have no chance of using public transport. Yeah. So you have to take a taxi and it's very expensive, as I said. So you see, there is a strong interest of these taxi companies, of these traditional companies to remain in business. So they hate Uber, not just in Hungary. If you look at other countries in Europe, France, for example, but other places in the world too, when Uber sort of surfaced, all these companies went just crazy because they, you know, they... Well, they had a monopoly. Yeah. They had a monopoly on, on, uh, on, on transportation, on non-public transportation. One of the... One of the interesting aspects of of uber's case here in hungary is that uh so this story goes back maybe about a year and a half or so uber's been in hungary for just under two years if i'm not mistaken Ish, yeah. and um and what what you saw was that all of a sudden now you have to imagine and if you go to western europe or you're in the united states uber is by and large uh, allowed in most metropolitan cities and um despite there being taxi protests there too and what happened in Hungary, I think, is that, uh, you know, there must have just been a sharp decrease in the amount of people that actually started using taxis because, yeah, because Uber was and, and the prices for Uber now are substantially higher than they were when they first got into Hungary. But the, the reason for that is Hungarian taxis are ridiculously expensive they because are. because the government regulates the market and they tax the market. And so. I get it. They can't like operate cheaper. They have to maintain their companies. They have to maintain their drivers, their cabs. And, you know, let's be honest that the, the reason why Uber was cheaper is was also because they did not pay as much tax as the traditional companies. Well, I guess I guess it's very important to keep in mind here that they're not operating on the same business model. So to say that they're not paying taxes, that's, you know, that's patently false. It's not. So the no, if a driver, if a driver in Hungary is has has his own business and that's how he's doing it you know it's up to him to pay the taxes for this service but he, that he's they, providing they didn't pay the well taxes. i think that's no i think that's wrong you can't go out and say that these people did not pay taxes Listen, because i'm sure there were people who were paying taxes and they, i'm sure there were people who weren't paying taxes and i'm gonna go one step further peter with cab drivers, I on numerous occasions one of the reasons why i started using uber was because i would ask for a receipt and they wouldn't give me a receipt and so, you know, if we're talking about paying taxes, let's admit, okay, this is a problem that everybody faces, like, you know, across across all businesses. But to come out and say that no Uber drivers were paying taxes, I'm not get saying out of here no, with that. Come on. No, I wasn't saying no Uber drivers paid taxes. I'm saying that not paying taxes, not giving receipts was a big problem with Uber. And when the tax authority did these random checks, they did find that a lot of... A lot of that those, happens with taxi drivers as well. I think it's not the same. Every I time I want to use... Uh, uh, my credit card they say oh sorry this one is broken when the tax authority did the random checks of uber drivers they found that not a lot of them 
gave out receipts and you know by extension that means that not a lot of them paid proper and, and tax. these concerns were raised to uber so when when the government did raise these concerns to uber um uber actually set out and adjusted but this wasn't the only concern they they no, raised. No, and i'm not saying that i'm not saying that the government was justified in like kicking uber out because that's what they did essentially yeah, yeah and i'm not saying that's okay i'm just saying that there was a legitimate concern about their drivers not paying proper taxes but that could have been solved yeah then no, no i'm not saying that i'm just saying that let's you know acknowledge that there were problems with uh, with their conduct the most interesting uh, part of this is now uh, here we have a great example of innovative technology that was uh, that was brought into hungary sure and you know there are a lot of debates about how taxation with uber works you know it's not based in hungary but they did have a hungarian subsidiary here yep. that was managing the the hungarian affairs and that subsidiary was to my best knowledge paying taxes um, if at the end of the day, the problem here was, are these drivers paying taxes? That is something that Uber also uh, addressed. Also addressed. And after all of this, the Hungarian uh, government uh, passed a law. Well, they they wrote a law. The Minister of National Development, uh, Mr. Shestak, he wrote a law, went before parliament, and this law essentially banned Uber from Hungary. And uh, this is just protecting the interest of the of the cab, of the traditional cab companies until they can adjust. And that's ridiculous. That's not. And they haven't adjusted. And this is this is a big problem: is that they they simply haven't adjusted. And in 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 my opinion, based on my experiences with with cab companies, there's very little incentive for them to change. As, yeah, especially now. They don't that's what I wanted to say. That now there's no Uber in Hungary. They don't have to change. Yeah, they don't have to compete on the price. They don't have to compete on the quality of the service because they just had their way. And yeah, I think that's that's terrible. It's pretty much why we can't have nice things. Uh, I would like to return to, if we're already talking about now we're stuck with the cab companies, some of the concerns that I've had with, uh, with, with taxis in Hungary. When I had a bad Uber driver in Hungary, uh, what I did was I would log on to Uber uh, from my computer and I would file a complaint. And now one of the interesting things about Uber's business model and one of the things that they provide uh, users with is a, a map. It'll actually show you the route that was taken by the driver. And I had drivers, I, I had two drivers that I, I remember um, in Hungary and I've been using it for a very long time in Hungary. Two drivers that really went out of their way. They didn't go the way that I told, told them to go. I said, don't use the GPS, just go the way that I tell you to go and that's, and that's, that's fine with me. And they went out of their way and, the, and it took a really long time. And what I did was I filed complaints with uh, with Uber, Uber refunded my money. They're actually able to track how I was driven to this whatever location. They refunded my money, and it was and it was okay. And this is precisely the kind of stuff that brings me back. Uh, many many young people who go partying at night, they don't want to walk home alone because it's sometimes it is not safe. And for them, Uber was really cool. They could afford. Uh, Uber, but they can't afford uh, a taxi. So I guess that's it. That's that's the whole Uber thing. Uber, it was fun to have you. And that was the What's Up With Hungry podcast. Signing out is Ben Novak and Peter Erdi. And Victoria Scherdult. Okay, and uh, we will talk to you guys next week. Bye-bye. Goodbye. Bye.